0: Hello and welcome to this episode of The Fool. I'm your host, Chris Amandor. This podcast is a tribute to the people I've met along my journey and to their stories. I've learned a lot from all of them and I'm really grateful. This conversation is with Susie, a colleague of mine at Canon Provisions. We recorded this over Zoom. Even though I had pretty bad allergies, I was really energized after talking to her. You'll hear about the birth of Cannon Provisions from seed to fruition and beyond. Susie's instrumental in creating the culture that we all love there. She's also been at the forefront of marijuana legalization and is a true wealth of knowledge. I'm grateful for everything I learned from her, for her openness, and her passion for the plant. She's a gem of a human, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. A quick disclaimer while everyone at Cannon Provisions has been supportive of this podcast, Cannon Provisions did not sponsor this episode. Any and all views and opinions expressed in this episode are mine or my guests and do not represent the official policy, position, views of Canada Visions. Hope you enjoy this episode. And so it begins. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Thank you for doing this. Really, really appreciate it. No this. problem. So Thank how's your day you so your far? Interest?
1: My day's been great. I've yeah. gotten laundry done. I've gone um, grocery shopping. I've showered. I've hit all my weekend marks in one morning.
0: Nice. What's your, yeah. What do you
1: like to eat? What did I eat?
0: No, what do you like to eat?
1: Oh, um, gosh, I love um, Triscuits and cheese. Nice. <laughs> and I like um, cheeseburger, bacon cheeseburgers. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. like to cook, though. I really don't care to cook. No. I've never enjoyed cooking. I've always felt kind of uh, resentful for some reason. Huh. Yeah. I think because I'm the fifth of five kids and I was always the baby of the family. So I was always being shooed out of the kitchen when it was time to cook. And so I grew up like with this expectation that a meal should just be placed in front of me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so that's the case. I just have to pay for it now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you want good food. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. but well, uh, exactly. A, a, where's a, where's a good burger place around you? Because the the, the type of burgers I like are like five guys.
1: Well, Right across the street at Twenty Railroad, there's a. Um, they make a house ground burger that is uh, what is it a, uh, short rib and brisket, wow made into a ground meat. Yeah, wow. that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So and then down at the Prairie Whale, they make a, a cheeseburger or they make a. They use meat in their burger, where you can like taste the happiness in the cow. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. that cow wow. had one bad day. That's it.
0: Wow. It's
1: amazing. Even flavor is like movie theater popcorn or something. The buttery, yeah, it's amazing. It's a $20 hamburger, but by gum, it's worth every penny.
0: (laughs) Well, did you grow up around Great Barrington?
1: No, I grew up out in Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, Moved out to the East Coast, golly, um, 1997, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. Over 20 years ago, I've been out here, and then and lived most of it out in New Hampshire, and then moved to Great Barrington in um, early early 2019 for cannon
0: provisions. Wow, nice. Yeah, Do you miss a, a back back west at all, Seattle area?
1: I miss the people,
0: yeah.
1: um, but that's about it. I couldn't be doing what I'm doing, or I couldn't be who I am and what I'm doing if I weren't here. Really, you know what I mean so. I just mean, yeah, especially given that um, the way that I landed in this industry has really heavily to do with the people that I met and, and know and could have only come to know out here. And I mm-hmm. don't know that I would have um, given cannabis such a central role in my work and life mm-hmm. out, the, out in Seattle.
0: Well, let's talk about the birthplace of uh, cannabis. When, when was the first time you tried marijuana?
1: Well, I remember growing up. And again, I'm the fifth of five kids, and my next oldest sibling is seven years older than me. So by the time I was like in my late, you know, in my tweens, as they say, Mm -hmm. um, I would experience marijuana in that my sisters would come downstairs and ask my mom and dad what was for dinner. And then depending on what was for dinner, they would either run up, you know, go upstairs right here, all kinds of commotion <laughs> and mm-hmm. giggling upstairs. And then they'd say they were going to go to, they were going to run to the library. And then they would come back with bags of Taco Bell or, you know, <laughs> clearly right. having decided they didn't want liver and onions. They wanted Taco Bell. Right. And I remember just being like, where are you guys going? I want to be with you guys. Yeah. And then a couple of times they uh, blew smoke in my face, but I never really noticed anything. And then it wasn't until I was maybe 19 or 20. hmm that I was um, in uh, on the Oregon coast with my friends at my mom and dad's, my mom and dad had a restaurant on the Oregon coast for a short time, a few years. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember getting high on the beach and the, just, you know, having that first really terrific laugh and that really amazing food, everything was delicious and the stars were incredible and, and you feel this wind on your face, you know, just that really sensory overload of just pleasure and delight in the mm-hmm. universe. And so I think that was about 19 or 20. And then I would just kind of try to, you know, whenever I could get stoned, I would,
2: mm-hmm. but I
1: didn't um, scrounge or hunger for it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I moved out here and met him or out to New Hampshire and uh, met a, my neighbor like to get high mm-hmm. and, That was one of the ways that we bonded because I was a new mom by then. And so anything I could do to kind of get away. So he would come and pick me up, bring me a hot chocolate, and we'd go for a bone cruise out on the back roads of New Hampshire. And just that reset was amazing. So after that, I was hooked.
0: Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was was my experience as well. Just like where where have you been all my life? And then, yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And I do remember because, you know, Seattle is also the kind of the birthplace of the uh, pot protestables, right? Right. With Seattle yeah. Hemp Fest. And growing up, I remember being um, conscious of this uh, Hemp Fest that was happening at this park every year, but I never, ever went. Um, and didn't really know what it was about. And I also remember looking in the back of um, magazines and seeing, um, you know, nor- advertisements for normal. Mm-hmm. Um, And so having this awareness about marijuana in general, but you know, this would have been back in like the late eighties, but still not seeing myself as any real part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then when I moved out here and I ended up, you know, in a relationship with a guy who was, is a, you know, full-time cannabis reform activist and his relationship with Seattle Hemp Fest and his relationship with cannabis Mm -hmm and his attitudes about it as a civics issue more mm-hmm. than anything more than something that was good or bad. Like up until that point, I had always just sort of assumed that it was a drug
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that it was illegal for a reason or for yeah. some reason. And then, uh, you know, being introduced to Keith and his perspective of like, I remember when he told me that he's like, you know, humans decide what is good and bad. Something isn't intrinsically good or bad. You know, they, they, decide as a collective and if you disagree with that collective agreement then you can activate and organize on your end to change those laws and and that you do that by kind of changing the conversation about cannabis in general like when they first you know for a long time you we only heard it talked about as a drug and then people primarily out in, in San Francisco during the AIDS crisis began to say, no, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a medicine. You know, mm-hmm. They might be like, yeah, it's a drug, like it's a medicine. And changing the conversation about cannabis and how it can help people was really instrumental in the legalization movement as a whole, I think, mm-hmm. and, my, and my normalization mm-hmm. of it, right. such that I was able to raise my kids with the, with the mentality that marijuana isn't a drug, it's a civics issue, you know, it's about it's more about do you agree with the laws, and if you don't, then get involved to, to work to change them, so i'm really grateful for that
0: yeah so that 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 choice that you made to become an mm-hmm. activist for for marijuana did you did you realize the consequence of that choice and the sacrifices that need to be made uh, to be an activist for legalization to,
1: to some extent, like I remember i I always called myself a activist girlfriend, really. That's what I was. You know, I'd go along to the parties and I'd go along to, I remember going to the Global Marijuana March in Boston and going, mm. find, going to the Freedom Rally and going to, the, going to Hemp Fest and meeting these amazingly self-actualized people. Because that was another revelation I had about proud and out cannabis users was that they had earned their place in the industry and in the, in the legalization movement because they had at some point pushed themselves away from the Thanksgiving table and Mm -hmm. argued with their uncle or, or clarified with their auntie that, you know, marijuana is not a bad thing, Mm -hmm. auntie. It's, it's actually how I help deal with my anxiety, or it's helping grandma have her eat after her round of chemo and kind of making those little gestures. And I also, Keith would always wear t-shirts that had cannabis leaves on them. And I remember being like, we're going to the grocery store. Is that really? Uh. And he would be like, there's no law against wearing a t-shirt with a picture of a plant on it. You know, he would kind of whittle it down to for me so that I could set, begin to separate to what degree had I allowed my mind to become kind of fetishized and give more value to the idea that it was illegal than anything else. And that was really empowering. I remember, you know, a lot of times like the first move, the first act you can take as, a, as an activist is simply to activate, is mm-hmm. to say, I'm willing to catch your eye. If you notice my shirt and we notice each other, mm-hmm. we are going to recognize and see each other as fellow sisters and brothers in
2: right. this
1: love of the plant. Right. And that was really empowering. So I guess the first time I started being an activist about it in, gi- in earnest was when I began to acquire my collection of t-shirts and my weed pins. And I would go out and wear them, mm. you know, just wear them right. and catch. And people would say, I like your pin or "Oh, nice shirt. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Imagine if we all turned green for a day, how on mm-hmm. un- alone we would feel. Yeah. So I guess that, that's kind of the first thing. I also, at the time that I met Keith, I just really threw myself into the Boston legalization scene. And he was the host of an internet radio show called the Boston Pot Report that I would co-host on from time to time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, that was also, again, just meeting the most amazing, kind, genuine people
2: mm-hmm.
1: who were just good doobies, you know, friendly, good doobies and the you know and then over the course of time as i would meet more and more people beginning to slowly realize like golly because i remember one time thinking i don't know one woman in this you know marijuana policy movement that has a string of baby daddies mm-hmm. and yet i can think of lots of women with you know who who do have strings of baby daddies and the and the commonality between them all is has to do with you know alcohol and and finding and, and investing in other methods of coping and that how that can kind of bring your um, inhibitions down and that marijuana never really did that for me. You know what I mean? Like it would bring my inhibitions down, but only in that I could, I could become more myself. Yeah, It wasn't anything I needed to uh, be concerned about for myself. Right. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. You weren't so. going to do uh you know, um 20 dabs at lunchtime or anything like that. You, 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 you're going right. to fully function, but you just wanted to you know, enjoy, right. enjoy the moments. Yeah, for sure. Right. And
1: I wasn't going to get blackout drunk or get into fights with people or end right. up getting pregnant by a bunch of different men, ma- that kind of thing. So the 20 dabs a day didn't come until much later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you said that uh, Keith was wearing um, uh, cannabis sleeves and stuff like that, were, uh, and you started wearing uh, eventually your your version of cannabis mm-hmm. sleeves. Were there uh, criticisms that you faced from outside sources, like from the grocery stores? To- never, never, never. Oh wow. Nope,
1: never once.
0: That's never very cool. once.
1: I did have one extended member of my of the family uh, send me an email asking me to basically cease and desist with my. Uh, you know, my promotion or my posts about it on Facebook or whatever, because mm. of, um, you know, some mental health struggles that her kid had gone through that studies had shown was led, you know, was exacerbated, could have been exacerbated by marijuana use. Yeah. You know, I would get those kind of things where I would say, Hmm, this has more to say about you than it says about me or yeah. what, or the plant. Um, so I never really got any, I, I would have, um, Keith Stropp, he's the founder of Normal, Um, different Keith. He uh, wrote a book called uh, It's Normal to Smoke Pot. And uh, Keith and I had organized a book tour for him up in southern New Hampshire. And we found a location and a venue, and I would go, and I was inviting a couple of friends of mine that I knew loved Smoke Pot and thought they'd have a great time, and they wouldn't even go anywhere near the venue because. Mm -hmm. The book he was selling had a picture of a pot leaf on it. What? And yeah, and it well, it rang to me of the, um, the stigma and the fear yeah. that still permeates so many people's lives that they do not want to mix the two. That it's it's deeply private. Their cannabis use is deeply private, not shameful, just private. Yeah, and they're not interested in pushing the boundaries of blending the two parts of their lives yeah. and just being really like you won't even but there's a, going back to like what Keith had said to me there's no there's nothing wrong with a picture of a plant on a book why do you think you're the feds are going to come pounding your door down because you went to a bar that was open anyway <laughs> to meet a guy who wrote a book that has a picture of a leaf on it like you know that's some scary Nancy Reagan boogeyman stuff you know yeah
0: yeah well, so. I mean, you and I grew up in, in that, that kind of environment where it was, um, mm-hmm. we were hammered when we were kids about how dangerous oh, yeah. this drug is and how awful it is and you're going to go crazy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was, and the, my first introduction to a pothead was my brother, uh, the oldest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had this weird tattoo that looked like, uh, like a 10th grade dissected frog, you know, mm-hmm. and, he, and he was always not with it. And so to me, he, like, he, I knew he was a pothead. It's like, well, I don't mm-hmm. want to go anywhere near it or anything like that. And then there was also stereotypes like uh, the character from Jim Ignatowski on Taxi, um, mm-hmm. you know, just not having his, his, his capacity. And It's like, I don't want to experience right. that. So I believed all that stigma, you know, and you had the fortune of, of not having, well, eventually getting out of that.
1: Right. I was able to shed it pretty easily. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another story I remember um, that always sticks with me was, being like around seven or eight years old and my dad was watching TV and he was watching like a, it was called town hall. It was like a local news program or where they took questions and answers. And a, a woman said uh, from the audience said, well, all I know is that, you know, the defendant, they found pornography on his coffee table. Like that was the reason right. that he had been, you know, he had gone and murdered this girl or whatever. And my dad yelled at the television And I bet he had a gallon of milk in the refrigerator too, lady. And I remember being like, huh. And that forever after that's always left me with this awareness of like, yeah, I I get high, but I also have a gallon of milk in my refrigerator. Like I'm more than just one sense of identity. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. It's like normalcy. It's like, so what? You know?
1: Right. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. It really isn't. It's never killed anybody and learning more about it and and the history of it and the fight for legalization we owe a real debt of gratitude to uh, the people that literally were compelled to activate and stand up and fight
0: and you know and right. that's right and that, and that that reminds me of the uh, what i need to do as well which is to thank you and to thank keith for being out there and 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 bringing awareness to this wonderful plant you know, mm-hmm. what, it's was an amazing,
1: there, amazing um, thing.
0: Was there was there a risk of uh, possibly going to jail because of advocating for marijuana?
1: Um, yeah, always. I think one of the, the thing not necessarily for me, like by the time, again, this was like 2010 mm-hmm. when I got into the mix. And, uh, you know, one of the other things I've learned about activists, especially in drug reform, is they're willing to make a federal case out of it. Yeah. They're like, try me. You want to get me? You know, yeah, please do. You know, because that's kind of how, that's another avenue for changing, for changing the laws, right? It's through the legal mm. system, is to make a federal case out of it. And right. I began to be kind of attracted to that concept in terms of once you realize that there's systems and mechanisms in place, like kind of like the ACLU, but like, you know, the, the legal defense fund that normal has yeah you know that where it 's like, listen, if you get a hold of the right people, your case is likely to be compelling enough, especially somebody like me like a you know, suburban white soccer mom type,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, your case is likely to be very interesting and, and potentially very compelling when it comes to making a big deal out of nothing, which is what the cop was might have been trying to do in the first place so
0: um, yeah. there 's one, uh, one question I want to get back to is that uh, um, well, how did Keith get involved in this? What was, was uh, it seemed, he seemed he, to. Um,
1: he was um, going to college and was wanted to get his PhD in sociology.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: he uh, began to write his, he decided he wanted to do his dissertation on the marijuana policy, an ethnographic study of the policy reform movement. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the weekend before um, 9-11 actually, He flew out to Seattle with nothing more than an idea that he was going to volunteer at Hempfest and see and try to get in behind the scenes and start studying things. And, and again, he had the same experience that I had, which was just person after person, just the coolest, most amazing, loving, open, warm people that welcomed him into his home, into his, you know, he, he felt he found his family. Mm -hmm. in that in that crowd uh and so he ended up writing his dissertation which was another active uh his another major piece of activism for him because he had to go on record as being a regular cannabis user and this was back in like the late 90s oh and yeah and so that was a big deal and getting all the appropriate people to sign his, his dissertation paperwork and and managing their anxiety around putting their name on a piece of paper that, you know, said these kinds of things. And, and so he decided that uh, if he's going to do it, then every time he gets high, he's going to work to change the law.
0: Okay.
1: In whatever, you know, the term he would use is civil disobedience, you know? And so he ended up becoming the president of mass can, which is the big uh, normal chapter out in Boston Mm -hmm. and, uh, helped and organized the Boston Freedom Rally for several years and, and did speeches. And now he's on the board of the national board of directors at normal out of Washington, DC. And uh, you know, is another one who's just very self-actualized and deeply authentic because of his relationship with cannabis. Like he's dispensed Mm -hmm. with those shenanigans that it's anything to be ashamed of or worried about. And like he often says, you know, the laws, Cannabis is legal. The laws just haven't caught up yet. And you can kind of see that in terms yeah. of like when decriminalization came and it was the worst, you know, you could have up to an ounce and only be charged a hundred dollars fine, you know, or you could, um, gradually get more and more people were changing their attitudes about it. And the, and then of course the medical marijuana community, especially out in California, again, back to the AIDS movement, that was another major element of, um, changing people's perceptions about cannabis and what it can do. So, yeah. So that's kind of what he did. And then he, you know, he's on the board now and uh, is very heavily involved at a national level um, in reform. And, And yet it's an interesting position because to be the kind of person who is an activist, Um, it's hard to find a space for oneself in the in in the now legal industry that your hard work brought about helped to bring about
2: Mm.
1: because it calls for a different kind of mindset and a a work ethic and different kind of approach to interacting with people and whatnot in a way that I think that uh, for me in particular because I was kind of had a little bit of an arm's length from that attitude I didn't actually possess that combative kind of activist attitude I was just kind of along for the you know because I got to be a plus one at a first class pop party (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and meet really great people Um, and so I was able to understand that there was a place for me in the cannabis industry if I could find a way in Mm. um, because of my background and realizing like at the end of the day once this becomes legal it's Simply another industry. It's like tomatoes. It's like selling tomatoes. You know, Mm. it's it's like any other regular. It just becomes a widget. Like, well, what are you selling, and what do you have from your background that applies? I always say, you know, you tell me what you do, and I'll find you a role in the cannabis industry because there's room. There's room for everybody,
2: right?
1: If you're interested and you're willing, and you have skills that you can bring to bear, if you can bring chocolate to the land of peanut butter, as I like to say. Then you will make good, tasty treats. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, it's true. I I, just, I found I found the same things. Yeah, I've only been doing cannabis for, for seven, uh, seven and a half years, um, mm-hmm. but my life has drastically changed. Drastically, yeah. I, don't, I don't even recognize myself anymore, and that's a really, really. good thing. That's a that's really great. Thing. I guess. Yeah. No, it's good if you say so. <laughs> no, It's totally good. No, it just made me more open and kind and. Yeah, it's, it's it's great. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I would sleep, I would sleep from uh, midnight, wake up at two, and then I could not fall asleep until five, and then I wake up at seven. And I did, I can sit, I did that for uh, over thirty years. Um, Good
1: grief! Did you drink?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Was it? Was do you think that your sleep cycle was um was impacted by the amount of drink you drank?
0: Well, there were times that I didn't and I thought it was just that but then afterwards I would I would have to drink just like on a weekend or something to get some sleep. And that would work. Mm-hmm. You know, then I, that would work for a little bit but I I was pushed into smoking marijuana and I did it and boy, it's just like I'm sleeping now and I never thought that day mm-hmm. would come. So A lot um, of
1: people say that.
0: Yeah. A
1: lot of people. Yeah. I think it's a it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a gateway drug. It's a great way drug, you know, yeah. it really is a, a wonderful thing. And I'm just really pleased. And I'm, I love dealing with customers who are new to it. You probably enjoy that too, where they aren't sure what they want and they don't, they know what they don't want. And what they mm-hmm. don't want is insomnia. And what they don't mm-hmm. want is pain.
2: Yeah.
1: And to be like, well, let me introduce you to my friend, Mary Jane, you know, yeah. take her as a tincture, blah, 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 blah. It's really gratifying, and then to hear back from them that it works. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. Result. Yeah, I
0: yeah. remember being in um, in, in uh, Denver when I worked at the dispensary out there, and this guy was trying uh, medical grade uh, CBD, um, mm-hmm. and he, you know, told him put it put it in your coffee, tea, whatever, in the morning. And yep. he had a uh, he was he was in a, um, a walker, um, and I saw him two weeks later. He was not using mm-hmm. a walker. You know, it mm. it, it changed his life. wow yeah it's it's this stuff is amazing and but Mm -hmm. um since since you uh since keith was uh, declaring a pot user was he harassed by um by, by the government
1: um i don't know we'd have to you'd have to ask him that i i know that um he never really has been not that i know of i mean he was arrested for possession in in new hampshire in like 2014 and uh And, you know, paid his fees. But it was very interesting because he got popped for smoking dope in his car. And then, you know, when he was brought to the police station and they empty out his bags and, you know, rifle through all of his things and he's wearing a suit and tie and his bag is full of tests from, you know, Northeastern Institute of Cannabis. They're like all about cannabis. You know, he's clearly not just some stoner. Mm -hmm. his nickname when he had the radio show was the most dangerous stoner in the world. (laughs) And it really is true Mm -hmm. because when you have intelligence and, uh, and intellect and awareness about your, your rights and how they are formed Mm -hmm. intrinsically uh, you become a very, you can become a very dangerous person, which is kind of going back to what I was saying. Like you're willing to make a federal case out of it. You become something that, that the cops may or may not really prefer to deal with. Right. For sure. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then he also, you know, the board is filled with uh, lawyers and whatnot and people who are chomping at the bit to agitate. Yeah. They don't mind it at all.
0: No. It's their pleasure. What, yeah. I, they go to school for that. Yeah. 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 I make, that's how they right. make the money.
1: Yeah. Right. For oh sure. No, my dog's barking.
0: Oh, no worries. How is, it, how, is, how is she doing anyway? He's old. Maybe yeah, he was—he uh, was having a hard time seeing. Correct.
1: He is blind as a bat. Okay. I think sometimes, and, and I almost wonder, like, if I think he might see flashes of light, if instead, like, because if I go like this, where I'm blocking the light from his eyes, I almost wonder if it has more to do with my scent, kind of pushing through the air suddenly that brings him about, because mm. his sniffer is on point. Yeah. On point.
0: Yeah, dog sniffers so, are amazing.
1: They really are. They really are.
0: So, they really are. Um, going back to thing you said about uh, your parents owning a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Well, what part? What part of that mm-hmm. life? What time in your life did they own that?
1: Um, let's see. After high school, so like, I'd say maybe um from like eighteen to twenty one or twenty two, mm-hmm. down on the Oregon coast, uh, mm-hmm. Cannon Beach, and then Seaside, Oregon.
0: And, which, uh, but and- it was great. And were you the cook? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no,
1: My dad was the dish. My dad was the primary dishwasher. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, dish lick and bottle washer. And uh, my sister, Marsha, she was the manager of the restaurant. My other sister, Jocelyn, worked, uh, was a, an assistant manager for a time. And then they had a small staff. And that yeah, was a beautiful time. They wanted to play restaurant was kind of how they put it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They'd inherited some money from a uh, quasi evil stepmother that my mom had and uh, ended up buying a restaurant and they would commute back and forth from Seattle to Oregon. Um, you know, from They'd come home on like a Sunday night and they'd leave again on Wednesday kind of thing. Mm. And then they ultimately retired down there for a time. But uh, yeah, they had a real good time with it. Um. They enjoyed it
0: was did you have the same relationship with your quasi evil grandmother
1: uh well so, uh, fifth of five again by the time I came along, she had pretty regular dementia. There was a story about um Grandma Ruth how she always thought that the devil was after her,
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: she would hide things and then she would forget that she had hidden them and then she would claim she would say that the devil had stole them and one mm-hmm. day. The devil, uh, while she was in her black Cadillac, the devil shifted her car into reverse and her car rolled back and off of uh, Magnolia Cliff, which is like these magnolias, this old bedroom community of Seattle, downtown Mm -hmm. Seattle. And she, the black Cadillac, went back and then fell down and landed on top of like a giant oak tree. Mm. And she was just sort of left teetering there. And I remember my mom and dad just being like, oh, God this woman. And I, you know, it was more the relation, the relationship I had with her was having to explain when she would snap at me for not saying thank you for the check she sent me for my birthday. I'd be like, no, that was Marcia's birthday. That wasn't mine. Just kind of being misunderstood and yeah. having, being a little kid who had to go and sit at grandma's for a while. Cause mom or dad had to go do paperwork or deal with that kind of thing. And it was interesting because uh, she was, um, my mom had kind of a Cinderella kind of life where her mom her, her mom died when she was like 12 Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and then her dad remarried and her dad remarried a a woman who had two other daughters. Mm -hmm. And so my mom ended up being kind of like the Cinderella character with Drusilla and Priscilla always getting the limelight. Mm -hmm. And when, when her dad died, he left all of his money in a trust that was to support grandma. And so there is always like an underlying current of of, uh, resentment and and dislike from, for her from my mom. And so my mom and dad often would, in a macabre kind of way, they would joke about or scheme or plan or say that that was their retirement plan was when Grandma Ruth died. <laughs> and so then one day, my mom and dad, I woke up and mom and dad were gone, and I, they came back around like 10.30 in the morning, and we had like a split-level house, and I was up at the top, and my dad came was coming up the stairs, and he's like, your Grandma Ruth died. And the way he had like a little smirk on his face uh, was very endearing. It sounds kind of awful. But that night, um, mom and dad took all of us, all five of us kids out for dinner with all of the significant others. And we just had a grand time. We didn't celebrate her death, but we were excited about the reality of the, new, of the next chapter. Yeah. In, in, for everybody. And so with a portion of that money, mom and dad bought the restaurant down in Cannon Beach and just threw themselves into that because that's what they wanted. They had wanted to play restaurant. That had been their Mm -hmm. dream would be to like go to the Oregon coast and have a little diner and blah, blah, blah. And so they did it. So
0: it's, uh, I I drove down Highway 1 on my motorcycle uh, a while back and that was just gorgeous. I I still remember the Oregon coast. I still remember it. It is just unbelievable. Stunning. Yeah. Did
1: you make it far up north? How far up north did you up oh, I went from uh, Seattle
0: all the way down.
1: Oh, great. So you know just yeah. what I'm talking about. That yep. Cannon Beach with the haystack rock and...
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. And the wow. sand. The sand.
0: Oh, yeah. We are. Ah. What kind, we what kind of restaurant Sandcastle was it? We would the contest. Yeah, uh, it
1: was called Puffins at Cannon Beach. And uh, it was, you know, your chicken fingers, your pizzas, your three egg omelets. Okay. We, we would say our tagline was... Our food is so good. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. Yeah, it was good times.
0: But uh, I interrupted you. You were telling us about um, uh, Sandcastle Contest.
1: Yeah, yes. For several years in a row, my family would enter into the Sandcastle Contest, which uh, was a lot of fun. That was always a very big weekend. And you could drive on the beach back then, and you could have bonfires on the beach without a permit. And uh, you know the sunsets out on the west coast—you just can't beat them. Yeah, you can't beat it. Yeah, yeah. So great family memories of the Oregon coast for me, for sure.
0: I've always had a, a fondness for the west coast. I've always because that experience just opened my eyes to a lot of things. I, I really enjoyed it. I've always wanted to some yeah. some little place there, some point.
1: Yeah. And it's also really remarkable how much bigger the flora and the fauna are. The trees are so much bigger out there Yeah, and the vistas and the depth of view and, you know, out in Seattle, how you don't even really need screens on your windows. They're really, you know, unless you're living out in the boonies, uh, you don't really even have to deal with mosquitoes or bugs. You know, you could have a few houseflies circling in the summertime in the middle of your living room, but otherwise you know, you just had this beautiful crisp air and the green and then the blues and the water and how it would sparkle on beautiful days. It's beautiful. Mm. Really beautiful.
0: Yeah, I miss that. I miss that part of the country. I really do. Because you're right. It's like yeah, I have, are...
1: yeah, they're just so much bigger.
0: Yeah. You go on paths in the mountains and stuff and you just come across these like pristine uh, things of water and, and ponds of water. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's beautiful great. Beautiful
1: settings. It, Mm-hmm. And is I that, also lived in uh, Northwest Montana for a while, with, up by Glacier National Park, which was another just gobsmacking, you <laughs> know, mm-hmm. stunning natural landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the, the winters can get really cold, though. That's, that that wasn't for me. It's like, nah, no thanks. It's well, they get they there. get
1: w- cold and wet. Yeah, is what I remember. You know, it would never snow enough to close schools, but it would freeze over in the morning, and yeah. then you know start to melt by midday and then freeze over on your commute home, which was never fun. No, nope,
0: not no, for no. And, no um, not for me. And so you, um, you have, uh, you have two kids.
1: Yep. I have mm-hmm. a 20 year old son and a 16 and a half year old daughter.
0: What discussion did you have with them when it came to drugs and uh, marijuana? Well,
1: um, primarily we, I was, we were able to, again treat you know we lived in southern New Hampshire at the time and so primarily it became one of um again a civics lesson Mm -hmm. that isn't it interesting you know that you can go 12 miles south into Massachusetts and uh, and it's a hundred dollar fine but if it happens here in New Hampshire it's literally a very bad time you know the troubles Mm -hmm. that you'll get into um and you know the time I met Keith, they were like six and 10. And so right from, the, from their first consciousness or an awareness about cannabis, they were shielded from any other kind of hard drug use. You know, they didn't really have any kind of, um, there was no lumping in uh, of cannabis with other drugs. They didn't mix the two. They saw it as something that um, that Keith did that he worked on. Mm. and um, And that they saw it more as like a, a an issue that was important to Keith and important to mom mm. yeah and and then we would have good conversations about it you know with them, all of us, about um, how harmless it is and how much it helps people, and how the the issue the reason to stay away from it you know as an adult had more to do with the harm that could come to you if you encountered somebody who uh, didn't, who was uh, much more stringent and morally inflexible to it. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah. So they both, uh, I mean, both of my kids enjoy the reefer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, I see it help with anxiety and sleep and uh, attitude and fortitude and, uh, Yeah. Yeah. But I've always been kind of proud of how they, and they've always been, um, they've always really loved me no matter what. I guess that's the price of admission for having a, being a kid, right? You love your mom. Um, So hopefully I contributed to that understanding that it wasn't anything to be afraid of if mom was into it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know.
0: No, that's beautiful because uh, it's, i i my biggest curiosity is is how are people handling, or going to teach their kids, um, now that pot is going to be legal? How are they going to teach their kids about it? It's, it's alcohol, it's acceptable. You see commercials about it, but how, how are we going to teach our kids? And we don't, we don't want people to abuse anything. You know, no alcohol, no, right. no drug, but. Um, like, how are, par- how are parents going to do that? So I, I, ask, I ask everybody who has kids how they're going to do that. but Because I mean, I'm, I'm curious to find out if I have kids one day, how I'm going to explain it to them. So mm-hmm. it's more or less like I'm looking for help <laughs> when that day yeah, comes. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, I, you know, essentially, it's a, it's a controversial plant. Yeah. You know, and then talking about what controversy means and how it means that there's competing interests that feel strongly opposite one another and that that's the first thing you got to understand. And then Mm -hmm. again, understanding that people that something isn't intrinsically good or bad, there's no good or evil, you know, we've all got a little bit of all of that in us at all times. And if we didn't, we would be, you know, in, in bigger trouble, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so kind of starting from that point. And I think also that the, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend who grew up, she's like in her mid forties and she grew up with parents who in, you know, would have parties. And instead of um, finding, going home, waking up in the morning the next day and seeing a bunch of beer bottles around, she'd see lots of roaches and rolling papers on the coffee table
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they would talk to her and, and let her know that a lot, not many people understand the difference and that, that the lack of harm in this, in the cannabis, in cannabis and to, for that reason, it was important to be discreet and not really talk about it. The way that you you might talk with your friends about, "Daddy had a party and boy did he get drunk." You wouldn't necessarily want to bring that kind of conversation up when it came to mom and dad had a party and there were all kinds of roaches around the floor. Yeah, uh, you know, after in the cleanup, simply because of the stigma and the fear and and the prohibition of it. Um, that's the problem. That's where the crime and the victimization comes in is from the prohibition is from mm-hmm. the illegality. That's what causes the problem. Cause if you've got plenty of weed and you're, you you do not need to make a bunch of money or, a, or make your note to your, uh, your boss by selling his dope uh, you know, then you, once that's removed from it, you can really um, begin to relax and, and see the, see the plant for what it is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is a harmless friend of man that only wants to help.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: That's kind of how I see it. Yeah. Meg Meg Sanders once told me once about how she sees cannabis as like a uh like a like the ring from from the Hobbit
2: mm-hmm. or the
1: Lord of the Rings, you know, where it's it's a it's a powerful force that needs to be protected and kept out of harm's way because there are a lot of people that would do it harm simply for money or, you know, power. And that the important thing is to keep, is to always be willing to protect the the true and the righteousness of the qualities of the plant, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a great, yeah. that's great. That's a, that's a fantastic uh, expression of, 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 of this plant. Because can, mm-hmm. like Meg said, like you're, you're saying, it, it can be abused, but, you know, let's not, let's mm-hmm. not go there. Um, are you right. familiar with this guy named uh, Gary Vinochek? No, uh-uh. Uh, I guess he's like a, a motivational speaker for people starting businesses, and he's in the. He was started as a wine connoisseur. Um, he was saying like he's he's really big into the cannabis uh, um, industry as well, and mm-hmm. one of the things that he was saying was that it's going to be heavily regulated for the next twenty years. You know, even though it might like states might pick it up and legalize it and stuff, it's still going to be one of the most heavily regulated industries for a long mm-hmm. time. Do you agree mm-hmm. with that or?
1: Yeah, I do. In the same way that, and yet I think it will, uh, it will slide. I think it might follow a a, a like, the same kind of trajectory that alcohol does without the drunk driving and the deaths and whatnot. But in that, you know, alcohol is another tightly regulated industry, right? Mm, uh, Through with, in spite of which humanity has found ways to grow, you know, it's like you, Mm you pave over a spot, but then there's one little crack and the plant and up comes the plant. And I think that's part of the human mentality is like to find where there's a will, there's a way. And, uh, and that's an important element of um, the normalization of it. I don't, I don't think that, uh, and I think also regulations make people feel better and Mm. safer,
0: Mm. you know? Good point.
1: And, and that's, that's an important part of uh, the normalization of it. Where it's mm. like, listen, tax me, whatever. Tell me I got to jump three times in the sky before you'll sell me my pre-roll. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: If that makes you feel better. Sure. If it ends this <laughs> this dialogue and gets me back to where I need to go yeah. and not back to living under my own agency, then let's do it. I'm okay. Yeah. You know, out in Washington, um, I'm friends with a, a couple that had a outdoor grow in Spokane called Washington's Finest Cannabis. And they you know, they talk a lot about how frustrating and difficult it is. There's a lot of kabuki theater going on in terms of the the regulations, you know, like they have two small children that are not allowed anywhere on the property when they're in the farming areas of their home, of their small business. Like they're mm-hmm. running a business out of their home on their property, growing cannabis. And, you know, their kids aren't allowed to see what they do. The, their kids are not And it's like, well, what is a kid going to do? Really? You know what I mean? Like even you and I know that you can't get high until you cut it and dry it and cure it and then set it on fire. Mm -hmm. You can't, you like, there's so many steps before the plant becomes something that society is supposedly worried about. Why is all of these regulations leading up to that entirely necessary? Right. And that it, it makes it, um, it's a real shame for them as a family because obviously they don't see any problem with it. It's their livelihood and they're doing it safely. And again, you know, a kid can't get high just by growing up next to a grow a, a grow farm, or they can't get high just by running down the, in between the rows of the plants. So I think there's some, some theater around that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But again, if it makes people feel better, I guess for now it's okay. Although having said that, um, in Washington, I believe that with the pandemic, they ha- there's some special compensa- or dispensation that's been made that has allowed, um, you know, if you are a licensee holder and you have a child under the age of 18 and you have and you fit and you agree and you blah, 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 mm-hmm. you know, then the ability to bring your kid onto the property has kind of uh, become a little bit more possible.
0: Okay, that's good.
1: So we'll see yeah. what happens there. But yeah, I mean... It is really regulated, and I think the next scary hurdle will be, you know, when um, Congress is set to vote on descheduling scheduling
2: mm-hmm.
1: cannabis, um, or rescheduling it, um, which is another uh, interesting element of the whole story of, of legalization, is that the hypocrisy around the fact that it's scheduled as a Schedule One drug, like a heroin. Right when it's nothing like heroin and even cocaine is like what's a schedule Two because you can use it, you can prescribe it, but only in surgery, certain kind of surgical uh, environments. And it's not even cocaine. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the hypocrisy of, of that is going to be an important thing and that, you know, it, if once they do agree, once the Congress does agree to reschedule it, then the banks can get involved and, then the tipping point will really um, hit. And once the banks become involved, then interstate um, transfers of things like money and resources can become, will become a lot easier for businesses. And, it, and it'll be uh, very interesting to see how cannabis and its industry, because another thing to keep in mind is that cannabis is the only, is the first um, industry created from a social movement. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's also happening throughout different states that are not connected by borders necessarily, like Washington and, and Colorado, they legalized cannabis in the same year, but they don't have any, they don't share any borders and they had very opposite um, uh, rollout programs, you know, like Canada, mm-hmm. Colorado said, okay, we'll be vert- vertically integrated. You have to sell 70% of your own inventory, unless you have a special situation. You can grow it at home if you want, <clears throat> whereas Washington was more like, you no, know, if, if you just want to grow it and sell it to, as a wholesaler, you can do that, but nobody can grow it at home. And so they offered up to be like sacrificial lambs, if you will, to be, all right, we'll, we'll be the first two states to go forward. Everybody can like, watch us and make fun of us and learn from us, and we'll go ahead and we'll do it. And then more states have come on board. I think it's, what, like 11 states now? And uh, I'm hoping that the amount of time cannabis has had to create its own industry and its own mechanisms in the U S without the hand of big brother or the hand of the Marlboro man. You know what I mean? That big Mm -hmm. corporate global overlord
2: Mm -hmm.
1: uh, is, I'm hoping will help us retain some of the, um, keep some of the money out of the hands of the big white man.
0: Well, it's funny. You mentioned that when I was living out in Colorado, um, I heard that Philip Morris bought huge amounts of land, large plots of land and they're looking to throw their hat in the ring as well. Is that, is that a sign of what's to come or.
1: I hope not. That would be a good, an interesting question uh, to hear Keith answer because I'm sure he'd be a much, much more articulate about it. Uh, Mm. But I, I wonder, because, um you know, out in Ohio, for example, when they were trying to bring legal, uh, recreational or adult use to Ohio, there was actually behind the scenes quite a bit of gerrymandering going on. Yeah. Like the people that were in charge of the laws, that were in charge of writing the laws, were also the people that wanted to get into the business. And so they wrote into the laws that only certain counties could have certain licensee types and they as a result ended up you know kind of screwing themselves over because even if the uh, even if the intent behind a law is is worthy for the cause if it's written like crap then you have to fail it so that it won't pass because it's not going to work that well and the way that uh, ohio had done it they kind of got caught with their pants down because they were seen as um they were found out as being just money hungry carpetbaggers mm. who weren't wow. really interested in the plant you know which again goes back to and another thing that kind of meg set talks about is and something i've often said is like i feel like people come to the cannabis industry for two things primarily one is because they love the plant and the science and the their passion and what drives them is I want to get this plant into I want to help people and I want Mm -hmm. this plant to help them. And the other side of the table are people who are interested in making money and see a new, a green, a green rush. Mm -hmm. And they want to get into it that way. So I think as long as both sides are able to be at the table together, we should be okay. But if it's a tipping point where it's more people that are money hungry, then the quality of the plant and the potential good of the plant will, uh, be um, in short supply that it will become more about like, no, just let me go to the quickie mart and buy a pack of joints.
2: Mm.
1: And then they've got, because the money, because they want to make the money on it, those joints will have more chemicals in them because it's cheaper to produce, or you can mass produce them if they are of a lower quality, that kind of thing. And so I'm grateful to the medical community, the medical marijuana community for constantly Pushing the idea, and it's an interesting thing now that I think of it. Because going back to what I was saying about how it's not a the medical community was like, It's not a sure, it's a drug in that it's a medicine. Remember, Mm -hmm. I was talking about that, yeah. And now we're kind of getting to the flip side of it, which is where the medical community now is having a hard time being like, Well, wait, sure, everybody wants to go and get high, but let's not forget it's a medicine, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, we need to have we need to stay safe and we need to be practical and we need to consider the health and wellness benefits. That needs to be the primary goal of pushing the plant out into the universe. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But then a lot of people would say, and I've met them myself that like, listen, I would be on all kinds of uh, opioids or all kinds of uh, alcohol problems if I didn't have cannabis to turn to. Mm -hmm. And so that in and of itself makes it a wellness product as well. I think it's like dogs. It's like the dog. It's man's best friend. Yeah. You know, it I'm really complete. is. It doesn't mean any harm. It just wants to, it just wants to help. Yeah. She just wants to help. And it's,
0: and it's funny you can tell, you can tell those dispensaries who are in it for the money. And there's a reason why I'm working <laughs> at Canada because that's not the case. You know, yeah. um, uh, Every yeah. everybody, I mean, we've got is,
1: investors. Yeah we've got investors that want to make that paper for sure. Um, But yeah, I think that Meg and Eric's um, particular vision, I mean, we're all so lucky to have them as our um, fearless leaders, because again, you know, Meg comes from that background of it's a plant that can help. It's a harmless plant that just wants to help. And Eric comes from a legislative, you know, political lobbying kind of background where he's not afraid to go toe to toe and make the makes a case that doesn't bother him in the slightest he enjoys that and Mm -hmm. so the two of them make an awesome awesome couple or they are an awesome team when it comes to defending this plant and promoting it so we're real lucky that way i think that has a huge piece of it yeah plays a big role in it
0: what um i definitely want to get to uh, Megan Eric, because I don't want to keep uh, mm-hmm. the, the fans, uh, or, uh, the listeners, uh, fans. Look at me being so pretentious. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I want to get want to get to them later on because they're, they're, <laughs> they're the reason why we're here. So, um, okay. but what what is what is your opinion that is keeping weed from, from being what what's keeping it illegal? I mean, so what? somebody's making money on, from this, making it illegal. Who, who's making I think it's,
1: um, well, I mean, up until, uh, Moscow, Mitch, pardon me, but Mitch, Ocon- Mitch um, O'Connell, O'Connell, Mitch O'Connell, Mitch mm-hmm. O'Connell. Yeah. The guy,
0: Mitch O'Connell. Mm-hmm.
1: um, up until he worked to make hemp, uh, you know, federally or something that could be legally sold and grown in, in the United States. I would have said that, um, a giant fear of it has more to do with, um, you know, people like uh, cotton producers Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or um, the alcohol industry. I think it's the, what's that saying? That uh, people who have known, those who have known, uh, what is it? Those who have known, those who who have always known power will find equality oppressive, Mm -hmm. right? Where they decide that their their paycheck depends on people, uh, you know, suckling off of their teeth their nicotine mm-hmm. teeth or their alcohol teeth that it, it, dep- it calls for it or their farm right. pharma- or their opioid teeth and um that that has deep roots in the way that our government is run and uh what drives it and what drives those kind of laws and so i think that's a huge huge piece of it that um you know the people who are very inclined there's a guy named uh, kevin sabet who is uh, kind of like a professional lobbyist for the anti-legalization movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's using scare tactics to try to scare people into thinking that it's better to just have your cigarettes and your alcohol because they're legal, you know? And it's like, well, but again, just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. doesn't mean that it is actually moving us forward as a society. It's legal because... Again, people way back then decided that it, it was, you know, better to have it. You know, like um, the uh, another thing that Keith had ta- pointed out to me was that how prohibition in the 30s or the 20s was basically, ha- you know, it, the reason it kind of ended had to do with um, women in the move. you know, women saying exactly. like, listen, our men are fighting. They are everything is going to hell in a handbasket because they don't have their beer let's just regulate it. Let's tax it. Let's just get people back to, you know, cause people have been wanting seeking to alter their consciousness since the beginning of time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? right? Since the beginning right. of time, we all need to let our hair down from time to time. That's part of being human. And so finding ways to do that in a way that isn't harmful to yourself or to others is essential. Mm-hmm. And if you've sure. held the market on, if you've held the market on on how society does that, you're going to be, you're not going to be very inclined to be like, oh, sure, there's plenty of room for other
2: mm-hmm. methods yeah. that
1: I don't have any business, financial interest in. So I think that that's the answer to that. I think it's gonna, it's uh, money, it's yeah. that dirty, dirty money.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, but I mean, I like to make money.
0: Yeah, if yeah. I had money,
1: I'd buy more weed, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. Yep, yep. It's funny you should mention where the women, uh, women were talking about how, um, you know, make, it, make beer illegal again because uh, mm-hmm. make it legal and so they can drink and, and, and all that. But what made it illegal in the first place was the temperance movement. And it, right. was a, it was a bunch of women who were getting the shit beat out of them on a regular basis. You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, the, you know, the alcohol is hugely a part of that. You know, it's like right. when, when people mention um, uh, that saying, uh, um, uh, rule of thumb, uh, it, it came from, oh, yeah, uh, yeah how you could beat before yeah, you could can can beat, beat your
1: wife. Right. They can yeah, only it could be as something thick as your thumb.
0: Thicker your thumb. Yeah. So yep. there's a reason why alcohol was illegal because it's right. just like women were getting beat. So, it was um, causing
1: too many troubles.
0: Too many troubles. I don't know the situation where that's Jeez. the case with marijuana. <laughs> I,
1: no, I've there, met some it really
0: isn't. cool people.
1: It's so much safer than alcohol. So yeah. much safer yeah. for everyone involved. Even right back to future generations, going back to my baby mama theory. Mm-hmm. that like I knew lots of women who had kids by different daddies because they'd gotten, everybody had gotten drunk and just wanted to be held one night mm-hmm. uh, instead of, everyone just wanted to relax. And so, and laugh with their friends all night,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, unwanted yeah. children lead unwanted lives. And if you aren't planning for it and it happens in the dark of night, um, you know, it can be trouble for everyone involved. Generations yeah. in all directions, you know,
0: That is uh that is well said. It really is. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's very true. I mean, be, you being a mother and all, you, you, you probably witnessed other mothers, uh, you can tell when a mother doesn't want their child. Do you, is that true or no?
1: I think you can tell when a kid feels they aren't wanted. I think that's yeah. easier to spot that they're trouble or they are um, your father, you know, that kind of yeah. thing Yeah. where they get that kind of an attitude from people.
0: And when you it's see just hard that. To feel,
1: it's hard yeah. to feel a part of something if you're constantly being made to feel excluded right. or not enough. And cannabis doesn't, Play, there's nothing to do with cannabis in that conversation
0: yeah you know yeah so and and so I mean some people think I'm I'm being a jerk when I say this but I I think the I think the basis for the the reasons why for the marijuana laws that marijuana is illegal is because it, I think it's racist do you agree oh absolutely
1: I, shoot yeah the race to incarcerate yeah I mean you know back after the civil war after slavery ended and then you know the Jim Crow laws
2: mm-hmm.
1: began to be when when the jig was up on that uh you had to figure out a way to keep the brown skins down mm-hmm. you know that's and and an easy way to do that was by using you know uh, an, an old, you know, Mexican word, calling it marijuana and attributing it to, you know, the jazz culture and the hippies and that reefer madness kind of attitude about it. Just sort of putting an otherness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, assigning an otherness to the uh, consumers of cannabis yeah. is essential to making society think that, that there's something wrong with it. It's mm-hmm. all in the company you keep, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's absolutely... It's absolutely. You know, my friend who grew up with um, a mom, who, and mom and dad who smoked dope and when they, she was growing up, her mom was, mar- she was one of the first kind of victims of, um, of the drug war back in the early 70s in that um, she got arrested because her boyfriend was selling dope in Greenwich Village. And mm-hmm. so Arlene got pulled into jail. And her story of being in jail, <clears throat> she's, was you could tell she was one of the very first women girlfriends that were arrested because before privatized prisons and whatnot, before you needed a steady influx of inmates in order to make a privatized prison industry kind of popular and, and successful, you needed bodies in the, in the system. And she was one of the, she, she seemed to be one of the very first women in there because she talked about how she had her, she, she had a terrible head cold when she was arrested. And then she also had her period and she had very heavy periods. And she talked about how there were no women officers in the jail when she was there and that all of the male officers just kind of laughed and mocked her and wouldn't give her any kind of supplies or any mm-hmm. kind of reprieve. And talking with Keith about it, he's like, well, yeah, she was one of the first uh, rounds of privatized prison fodder, you know, she was mm-hmm. the cattle, the new, a new kind of cattle, and they hadn't had any kind of, they hadn't anticipated so many different elements of what you need to, if you're going to start arresting the drug dealers' girlfriends, mm-hmm. who were, the only, their only crime was that they were in the apartment when you showed up, then, you know, there's a lot of things you need to think of and anticipate if you're going to, you know, start expecting to make money off of those kinds of inmates. And, uh, yeah. And, and I don't know if you see it too much anymore, but you know, where they're like any, if you're in the car, everyone in the car is going in with you. Yeah. That's like three or four bodies that can yeah. fill those prisons for the private pockets of the folks and the legal system. You know, yeah. that's probably, you know, and that's another, like, I remember thinking, uh, or remarking when cannabis became legal in Washington and Colorado was, like, shit, they got to figure out how to, they've been training dogs all this time to smell for dope. Mm-hmm. You know, they got to figure out how to, they got to, what are they going to do, retrain the dogs?
2: Yeah.
1: In order to, <laughs> like, how are you going to do that? Like, there's a ton of infrastructure and, uh, and, and crap that's already, that's deeply entrenched in how we operate as a society that doesn't really, can't really move on a, or switch on a dime for something mm-hmm. as major as cannabis legalization because the threads of it just run every, through all of society.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, and then, you know, again, I think heaven help the rich white man because uh, they think they've got it easy, but, you know, because society is kind of built to serve them and, and soothe mm-hmm. them to the point where, you know, if you can get caught, if you get caught with a a, a rock a crack Mm-hmm. And your skin is brown, your fate is much, much worse than if you're a white guy that's caught with a ground up bag of a rock a crack, you know, yeah. which we call cocaine, you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and even those tiny little ways of changing and twisting it and, and turning things to the advantage of the oppressor is, um, it's hard to untangle. And a lot of and and a lot of people's egos and paychecks depend on that structure staying in place.
0: Yeah, that's a sad part. Yeah, yeah,
1: it is. Yeah. It is.
0: So, getting back to uh, Washington and Colorado, what mm-hmm. what risk were they taking by legalizing marijuana?
1: Oh, there's a great documentary called Evergreen, mm-hmm. which is a great. Um, documentary about the legalization process in Washington, kind of a like a behind the scenes war room kind of thing. Uh, the risk was, is authenticity. It's a dangerous thing to be who you are in spite of what everyone else says.
2: Mm.
1: Wow. Right. And when you get enough, when you get enough people that are willing to, to not buy into the bullshit, then the conversation is forced to change. Mm. And that is, um, can be very terrifying for, yeah. again, the, the oppressor, the people that, are run, that have been running the show for so long. It begins to feel like anarchy
2: yeah.
1: when all of a sudden it, it can feel like the wheels are coming off the wagon and it's like, well, no, we're just kind of, we're waking up and we're, we're standing up.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that might be what you're feeling.
0: Um, yeah. Also, I, I wanted to uh, ask your opinion about Cuomo. He um, mm-hmm. had mentioned that
1: nipple rings. That's my first thought.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, n- uh, nipple rings. Um, yep. Uh, so Mister, he um, he had said that New York State needs to legalize marijuana; otherwise, um, it's going to go really bad for the entire state. And and you can see mm-hmm. the gas prices in New York already skyrocketing and everything else is getting higher. What are the consequences for the rest of America if we don't legalize as soon for each state? Because we're going to be facing a depression for all that money that was <laughs> poured out to, to America. Um, yeah. And everyone's warning um, me about the depression next year. So, like, what you do you One
1: thing I would say is... Um, There was a, there was a campaign in 2016 for the state Senate in New Hampshire and Keith and I were the co-chairs of this guy's Senate campaign, state Senate campaign. Mm. And one of the things that uh, Keith would talk about as a talking point was in New Hampshire, like New Hampshire, in spite of its size is the number one revenue producer for alcohol and tobacco in the country. Wow. And it's not because we might need to fact check me on that, but was what he had said at the time. And it's not because everyone in New Hampshire is a, you know, butt chuffing boozer, right. It's because of our borders. And so the, you know, unless you legalize right now and tax and regulate and promote the concept that like, no, you got, you should buy your dope in the town that you live in because the town that you live in will get the tax benefits and the host community agreements and the, you know, The benefits of it. And if you don't, all of that money will go sucking right out over the border and you Mm. will have lost again and again, you will have lost twice over, right? Because it could have been like my money in my town in New Hampshire that I'm spending in my, you know, it can stay much more localized Mm. than if I have to drive across the border and bring my money across the border, then Mm. nobody in my state benefits. Uh, And so, I think that's one of the larger, that's one of the pickles. You know, if you're a dry town in this context, you might think that you are um, looking out for your little ones, but you know, you're kind of not seeing the forest for the trees in terms of understanding how, what really unfolds in a, in a community that is willing, like Lee, Mm. like Holyoke, like East Hampton in a town when it's your, it's the beginning of your greatest disappointment as a town. If you aren't able to understand the benefits and the, the pluses to allowing cannabis retail in you, into your community. Like you look at Lee and the amount of money that we've been able to give them. I've often said, I think we should promote the idea at the end of each quarter, last few weeks of each quarter being like, listen to the town. Like if you live in the zip code, you really, sh- what are you doing? Buying weed anywhere else? What are you doing, right? Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> even to the point where it would be really great is, is as a guide, if we could say, you know, okay, your total comes to this and with taxes, it's that. And keep and thank you very much because you just contributed X dollars and X cents to the town of Lee. Yeah. Right and, and their kids and their the future of this town. So thank you. Have a mm-hmm. great day. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and kind of making it like a pride of place. I think we should definitely, you know, some kind of thing where we're like, if you don't live in Lee, Ma- if you live in Lee, Massachusetts, what the hell are you doing buying your dope anywhere else? Yeah. Anywhere. Right. What are you doing?
0: Yeah. We got so, the best. We really do. I mean, I, I travel a great distance to go to work because we get the best and the best of everything, best yeah. attitudes, the best weed, Yeah. Um, The
1: people, the culture at our, at where we work is just, it's unlike anywhere mm -hmm. It really. And it's a genuine, um, I think it has to do with us all being friends of Mary Jane. And, and again, going back to authenticity to get this job and to work in this business, you've said, again, you've pushed yourself back from the Thanksgiving table and said, Mm -hmm. I have an announcement. I Mm -hmm. am going into the cannabis industry and say what you will, but, here I am mm. and you'll, and I'll bring you around by way of a topical at first, grandma, mm. and then we'll get you, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then once, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you slowly reel them in and they realize, come on in, the water's warm.
0: Mm. The
1: water's warm.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, growing up, there there's no way I would, would have been able to, I've told my stepdad and my mom that I was going to smoke marijuana. No way. And live. Right. <laughs> and live. There's just no way. Right. And that, and really? and even when my mom died, I didn't tell my mom. Even when uh, you know when she was alive, I didn't tell her because that would have mm-hmm. just thrown her off the off the cliff. She she just had her, her point of view about marijuana, and just she saw the huge change in me. She saw how happy and how uh, loving it had become, but I couldn't tell her because it was marijuana, you know. And that was a sad part. But you know, it's, hmm. I live for? That's it. That's interesting. Yeah.
1: Do you think that she had any idea, like in terms of like, where, would, looking back, were there times she could have smelled it on you or seen the glassy eye or the distant gaze or the silly giggle? Um,
0: no, no.
1: no, no. She probably just was like, I don't know what it is. Chris is just so happy.
0: It just, uh, I mean, but the thing is, she was never around that kind of culture. She was more of a drinking yeah. culture. My mom wasn't a drinker. So she hung around in bars. She didn't smoke. She, she hardly drinks, just like an occasional glass or two. She never really got drunk, but um yeah, she just was never around that kind of crowd. Interesting.
2: Yeah.
1: I think, so. well, that makes me think of the word temperance, mm. you know, the, that, that there's a kind of a, a lot of people find comfort in uh parochial aspects of temperance, you know, just mm. kind of, I don't need to question it. I know that it's, I've decided it's wrong, and that there's no reason to examine it. Thank you very much.
0: Very much, true. and um, yeah, it, it is part of the you know part of the reason why I still have opposition to to uh, the Christian uh, Christian right because my my opinion is they're they're the ones who are making the push to still keep this illegal. Um, mm, really, from what I've been reading about the politics, has just been a lot of Christian right have been. Um, just been pushing for you know for it and my experience of having to deal with it when i was living in colorado um Mm -hmm. you you do see some towns or just don't want marijuana there because it's strong christian foundation so
1: god grows and yet it's the one drug that is you know god grew grass Mm
2: -hmm.
1: i give you every seed and every plant you know whatever you know that Mm -hmm. saying in the or that quote or that piece in the bible where it's like i give you every seed every plant and every animal like well so what's wrong then why why this one
2: yeah and
1: trying to tease that apart in folks with my in-laws who are very deeply religious and very christian they were quite suspicious of my interest in the movement and then you know gradually over the years during casual conversations, because that's another part of activism, right? It's being able and willing to have conversations with people about it and to be able to speak articulately about um, and debate conversations and debate points. And then to, you know, like with my in-laws, they were, um, you know, drugs are bad. Okay. Was kind of their (laughs) attitude. Yeah, And then, Last year for Christmas, I gave everybody uh, jars of Nordic goddess body balm. And in like mid June, I heard from my, mo- my mother-in-law asking if there was some way to get her a couple more jars of that because it really helped with Papa's you know, neuropathy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, yeah, I can get you, don't worry about it. So of course I got it for them and packaged it up and had my daughter drop it at the mailbox. And then they sent me a check for it. And I was like, isn't that sweet? They have no idea how far they've come <laughs>
2: yeah. in
1: terms of, you know, because a lot of people um, like another thing I've often said, you've probably heard me say it, Chris, is I grew up around people who wouldn't be caught dead paying retail prices for marijuana.
2: Mm-hmm. Nope, yeah.
1: not going to do it. And yeah. yet there's a whole swath of society that wouldn't be caught dead paying, uh, going to the black market for it. They're yeah. very curious and open-minded otherwise, but uh, they have like a, you know their um, what's it called? Uh their external source of approval is so great and large mm-hmm. that that is bad. Yeah. yeah, even if they may not agree with it in principle, or when you talk with them, it's still against the law.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's like okay, all right, well, hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, if you get a backache, let me know. I mean, I can, <laughs> like I said, I got this cream. It won't get you high, but
0: God yeah. forbid bit, makes something happy yeah yeah right I mean, yeah i just i, I kind of feel like i, I was a uh, neo in uh, the matrix and having to mm-hmm. wake up and realizing oh i just believe all this bull i believe all this bull yep. about it and um i mean i'll never forget my first hit sour diesel <laughs> mm-hmm. i just it was uh it was it was my strain, my sativa strain for uh, for seven years until i came across the 818 headband and mm-hmm. that that now is sort of the reigning supreme for me. That's your number eight one eight. Your number eight one eight. Head that is just fantastic. So That's you're great. familiar with all the? Are you familiar with the cultures and um, other cultures marijuana cultures from other countries like Canada and and Netherlands? Um,
1: the only real experience I have with another other folks from other cultures is one of my uh, favorite little notches in my cannabis bedpost, if you will, is. Um, that I went to a, a high times business summit in Washington DC one year
0: mm-hmm. and
1: we befriended a Rastafarian Sikh mm. named Jacko who had never done a dab before in his life. And so we were like, you got to party with us. And mm-hmm. so we brought him back to our room and we got him d- dabbed him out. And then ev- he was just like a, like a hungry puppy looking for that fresh bowl of milk. I mean, he mm. just was, and he ended up, so I turned him onto it. And, uh, he would, after I, you know, he would ask if he could do a dab, I'd say, sure, come on over. And he would come by and then he would do jumping jacks Mm -hmm. and sit-ups and push ups, uh, as I was heating the nail so that his lung capacity could be even more opened up. Like he was just so into it. He was really interested in working with us, um, at the time, because, um, you know, in Jamaica, there's a lot of political stuff that goes on in terms of rastafarians and the way that the government can kind of um uh, use their ways against them in that you know apparently like the rastafarian community is very much kind of a classic stoner culture where they get these ideas and then they may follow through on them but they may also just kind of decide to grab a nap or keep partying or whatever and that a you know, the Jamaican government in particular would do, would kind of go and infiltrate or put, whisper something into the ear of a a Rasta group that would create a bunch of vicious infighting within the group that would allow them to become distracted and kind of cycle out of the conversation because they're so busy dealing with their own stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this guy Jocko was trying to find American uh, lobbyists and, um, consultants that could help him and his community uh, navigate that political landscape because uh, that was a big, uh, that was like a a overriding um, barrier to the success of uh, Rastas and Sikhs getting involved in the cannabis industry in Jamaica. So that's really all I really know about that. I I'm ashamed to say at 50 years old, I don't have a passport and haven't left the country. It's all right.
0: I mean, you're, you're doing a lot of inward journeys. So, I mean, yes,
1: indeed. I mean, that's what I'm definitely, you know what? That's right.
0: Yeah. That's right. It's a lot more than what what most people are doing. So
1: that's true. You can go all around the country and never find yourself. That's for sure.
0: Oh yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, all around the world. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No kidding.
0: I mean, yeah, I've been all around the world and I, I've come back home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So I've come to find myself. So, uh there's an old chinese sure. saying it's um the height of stupidity is when you are traveling a thousand miles looking for a horse when you're riding a, a donkey and uh yeah. it's it's i kind of feel like that's that's been my life and the inspiration for the fool it's like hey i i'm a jackass <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but i want to hear your story um so right. let's let's get to the the uh the, the people that have uh, changed our lives for the for the greater uh, mm-hmm. Meg megan eric um, how did mm-hmm. you, how did you, how did your journey get to Canada and how, how, what were the challenges?
1: I, uh, I first met Eric Williams when he was a guest on the Boston pot report.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Keith had wanted to talk to him because Eric was, uh, in the, uh, involved with the normal Connecticut chapter of normal mm-hmm. in terms of, um, getting there, getting Connecticut's legislation such that laws and bills could finally be passed that. Would um, allow medical marijuana to become legal in Connecticut, and so Eric interview, Keith interviewed Eric for that sh- um, on that show in like 2011, and then um, later uh, the Boston Freedom Rally. I don't know if you've ever been to that, but every third September in mm-hmm. um, every third September on the Boston Common is the mm-hmm. Boston Freedom Rally, which up until legalization. Uh, was a series of activist speeches and interspersed with musical bands. And now in the, the latest years, it's become more about becoming kind of an outdoor concert festival that has short speeches in the middle. Mm-hmm. But at the time, uh, in these early years that when, when I was involved, uh, Eric was invited to be a speaker. And so Keith had invited him to be on the radio show. And so Eric showed up at the studio and Keith Strop, the founder of Normal, was there. And uh, the whole room was filled with people. I actually have some great pictures of that day. That was the first day I met him in person. And we just got on like a house of fire, just good buddies right from the start.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, later that night after the show, after the radio show, there was a, a Battle of the Bands thing in, in Cambridge. And I was standing there and I was talking with Eric. And all of a sudden, Eric, like, looked up over my shoulder, and the look on his face just turned just to the most sweetest, just mush. Like, <laughs> you know that movie, The Mask, when um, Jim Carrey, he sees somebody in his heart, like, goes, mm-hmm.
2: whoo, whoo, yeah. It
1: was like that. It was so sweet. Wow. So sweet. And I remember being like, who are you looking at? And there was this beautiful, you know, willowy blonde woman. That had just finally come in from the, you know, she came in through the door, and Eric saw her and he went went over to her, and um, I remember just being so, uh, it was so adorable how um, full of adoration and and just smitten he he was with her, and they were with each other, and I didn't really meet Meg that that day, <clears throat> but I just remember being like, oh, isn't that? that's sweet at <laughs> seeing them over the course of the weekend. And then um, Eric and Keith were buddies for, for, at, at the time. And um, as my relationship with Keith evolved into kind of traveling more, I ran into Eric and Meg at different events. Like we went to the, um, at the high times business summit in Washington, DC, uh, Meg and I sat next to each other at the VIP dinner or whatever. And we were the only girls at the table and, we just bonded, like glue. It was mm. just wonderful, just so much fun, and we had a great time with the fellas the rest of the night, and just became, you know, pretty good friends after that. And um, and Keith and I would go down to Eric's house in Connecticut for different events and parties, and we just always had a great time together. And then um, one day, Meg adver- or posted on Facebook that she was looking for an assistant for this job that she had over out in Boston at the time. And Keith was like, Susie, you need to go to hold of Meg. And so I did. And Meg and I were like, oh, Meg was like, shit. Oh, you'd be great for this. And so we ended up working pretty closely together for like the next six months. And uh, then that sort of um, through no fault of either of ours, that that situation uh, shifted gears and then you know, can of provisions. I heard, you know, heard tiny little smatterings. This was like in 2018, little details about it and the potential for a situation and that, you know, what Meg needed was to be the CEO because she knew what the hell she was doing. Mm -hmm. What she needed was for people to get out of the way and to stop doubting that she knew what she was doing. And uh, and so I remember just really, holding my breath and crossing my fingers for about six or eight months uh, as the deal kind of slowly came together. And um, during that time, my marriage was kind of coming to a graceful, uh, making a graceful descent into a new chapter, which is a kind way of saying I was in the middle of a amicable divorce and had no real idea what I was going to do. I knew I didn't want to stay in New Hampshire anymore. I knew I wanted to be in the cannabis industry I knew I'd be good at it. I knew I could, I'd sort of shown that uh, to Meg anyway, and Eric, and it ended up turning out that the day I had like two days before I had to make some kind of final decision about what I was going to do once the house sold in New Hampshire and where I was going to work was, you know, two days later was, you know, the opportunity to come and talk with um, the, investor, the partners that owned Canada, that were going to, you know, the other people that were involved in Canada provisions
2: mm-hmm.
1: and was able to like, like a transcontinental railroad, like one guy put the railroad tie down another guy put the nail in and then the other guy went bang. And yeah. then the train went by, do you know what I mean?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It worked out just beautifully. So I um, was able to move out here and um, I had thought about moving to um, Holyoke at first. Cause I had, you know, understood that like, Eventually, the headquarters was likely to be in Holyoke. We were probably going to start in Lee first, but then ultimately, Holyoke was going to be where it was at. And um, Meg had said, well, just come down. I mean, look at Great Barrington. Look into GB. It's great. It's a very cool little town. And it's only like 25 minutes from Lee and blah, blah, blah. And so I looked into it because I was also trying to figure out what uh, my daughter was going to do for school. And so I was looking into the schools and learned how fantastic the schools are out here. And um, so I ended up choosing Great Barrington for the school system. Mm -hmm. And um, I started at Canada Provisions as employee number one uh, on like February 4th, 2019. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: then we hired our first round in early March. And then our second round in June. And then another round in October. And now what are we like 118 people and three stores Mm-hmm. And the cultivation site is right around the corner. And the manufacturing, I mean, it is happening. Mm-hmm. Meg and Eric are also the first people I've met in this industry that have done what they said they will do, which is a really staggering thing.
0: <laughs> what, what was that like to watch as, as being Meg's assistant? What was that like to watch Meg make this work, make this happen? Like, how did that feel for you?
1: Um, it was incredibly gratifying. What do you mean before Cana Provisions came on board when I was working with her before that?
0: Yeah. Or, yeah. Like um, when she had this really vision, she, yeah.
1: Yeah, it was really gratifying because um, I felt that she believed in my abilities to be um, effective and productive, like, uh, which was really gratifying. Mm-hmm. She also presented to me a new idea for what it means uh, to, um, to fulfill your potential as a woman in particular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, she, mm-hmm. just, she was very successful out in, in Colorado, not without its own sets of heartaches and drama and, you know, gut punches and whatnot. Um, but here she was, you know, and she knew what the hell she was doing. And Mm -hmm. she again had this overriding uh, affection and devotion to the plant, not the money, but the plant. That's always been her driving force: is getting this plant into the hands of people that could benefit from it. Yeah. And if she makes money along the way, that's icing on the that's the cherry on the top.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, it's not the not the ultimate point. And then also having. Seen other people try and fail to make it in the industry to know that she had a track record you know she was i don't know if you've seen have you seen her 60 minutes appearance no she i didn't featured on. yeah she was featured on 60 minutes when she was at the ceo of mindful and i remember seeing that in real time and then realizing that i knew her and that just was like um that was very powerful and it right. was something that I would refer back to because everybody who had, as, for all the people that I had watched try and fail in the business, all the people that knew and loved me before any of this ha- happened, they looked to me with real skepticism and worry that I was going to be putting all of my, here I am, putting all her, here goes Susie, putting her eggs in the bat in one basket again
2: mm.
1: and being like, no, no, I mean, she's the real deal. She's the real deal. Yeah, she's the real deal, and you know it still is surprising, but less so with each day, to see that they do what they say they will do. Yeah, and that's really exciting to
0: me. So, um, a few minutes ago, you had mentioned cultivation. When I heard that we had hired dog, I, ah. I, 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 I was. In te- i was almost tears. yes yes i was like how did that come about because i am so goddamn grateful i cannot wait i hope to interview chem dog i really really do that would be that'd be the height of, yeah. of doing all this so to, to interview him
1: as i understand it um sean Curley. sean had always has has been following chem dog for years and years and years big fan big fan first time long time listener first time caller kind of guy you know yeah, yeah. and uh reached out to chem dog to chem at one point about the the dispensary and i and i think that chem dog had said either like oh yeah my wife just got back she she just went to can provisions in lee and she was telling me all about it yeah we'll come down and check it out together and so then they went and checked it out and then and Sean and Eric were very excited. They were fanboying big time. Mm-hmm. And uh, later the next day, they both came into my office and were like, I got high with Kim, dog. <laughs> they nice. were like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. And, um, you know, Kim clearly picked up on the culture and what, we're, what we put, you know, what it means to be a part of our team and the potential and the genuineness of both Meg and Eric and Sean, you know, Mm. and uh, between Meg and Eric and Sean, uh, Kim shared that, you know, a lot of people had been interested in, you know, renting his cachet, (laughs) if you will. Mm. Uh, And yet he was very afraid and trepidatious about joining with in certain folks in the industry because they weren't his kind of people on like a fundamental intrinsic level and the comfort and the assurance he felt in his gut about Meg and Eric in particular uh, made him realize that he would be safe with us. And, and so you know, how like when you fall in love with somebody and you're like, all right, let's go, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: let's go. And then you go. So that's kind of what it's been like. And it's pretty exciting it's really yeah. exciting because that is huge it's huge
0: yeah
1: and and you know and to think about the um you know our seeds are you know we're starting with plants that came from chem seed bank whoa you know? yeah
0: yeah whoa
1: the way you say that makes me think I shouldn't have said that.
0: No, no, I'm just, (laughs) no, I'm I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm fanboying myself. I'm, 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 whoa, this is amazing from his own seed banks. This is amazing.
1: Right. Leah. Imagine like a big tub full of seeds. And then he's just like, no, I got all these, anything we want. Right.
0: And from what I, what I've heard, there's, there's going to be three strains specifically created just for us.
1: I would believe so. That doesn't surprise me at all. I haven't heard that exactly, but I, I'm sure that that's
0: true. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's incredible. That's it's incredible. I'm enormous. I'm, yeah. But what, 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 give people a background of, uh, of Chemdog and why this is so significant for the marijuana well, world.
1: From what I know about him, he is a, uh, you know, he basically, he, in, you know, he, what do you call it with a seed? He invented Sure. Created. Mm-hmm. He created uh, the strain ChemDog, which ultimately became like the proud papa of other strains like Blue Dream and any number of the other kind of ChemDog derivatives. And he had a pretty large underground uh, situation going on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then, um, you know, the feds came calling and he had to go dark. And, but, you know, his strains lived on and he turned to glass blowing and uh, he does some amazing glass pieces in the meantime. And, you know, as the heat kind of wore off and died down of that kind of, you know, being on paper as from a a federal uh, position, he became more interested and more inclined to be uh, willing to talk with, you know, the legal industry and, Mm find try to find a place for himself if it was possible if it was the right relationship and he found the right relationship with us it's really yeah but i'd heard about him from the early like 2010s i'd heard about heard his name Mm -hmm. not just the strain but the name that he was a human that was still alive and walking the planet yeah and then you know to be introduced to him was
0: pretty cool I Pretty heard cool. he created. Uh, he he co-created uh, sour diesel.
1: That I wouldn't. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I don't know much about the strain business. It's a bunch of horse races to me. At some point, because I, oh,
2: it?
1: <laughs> you just like we going back to the Boston Pot Report. Part of the thing was that Keith would do taste tests on the twenties.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So people would bring in different strains of marijuana, and then at twenty minutes after each hour, it was like a four-hour radio program everybody would light up and then keep, keep track. And then at the end of the show, we would vote on what our favorite strains were. Mm. And I could never pay attention.
2: Mm-hmm. I
1: was like, well, I don't know, just what's the, what was the, what were the names? All right, I like the name of that one. <laughs> that was my favorite.
2: Okay.
1: Uh, but a lot of people really do care about, about their strains. And like, you, you know, with your sour, sour Diesel or Sour Joker you talked about in 818, mm-hmm. like, you know what you like. Whereas yeah. I'm more of like a um I'm just more of like a thirsty, <laughs> yeah. thirsty girl yeah. who just wants to get high. Who doesn't care. I mean, yeah. I know I like sativas. Yeah. But otherwise yeah. and I and if I have two or three great highs from something, I may be like, What the hell was that? Yeah what's that strain? Oh, cool. Like that's how I feel about Tangie. Like Tangy has a place in my heart because of some live sugar I dabbed mm-hmm. of Tangies that had me just so like, and another thing, oh, we could try this. How about that? <laughs> it's so interesting to hear when people talk, you know, when they review cannabis, that there's some people that want to talk about the terpene profile and the, the taste of smoking it and what that's like. And then there's others that are like talking more about the bud structure and the growth pattern and how that played out. And I tend to be more about like, what was the high like? What was it yeah. like to be high on that though? Yeah. You, was it thought provoking? Were you anxious? Were you, I think that's why it'd be really cool for, I. you know, we started doing some, we've been doing reviews. People, mm-hmm. employees have been doing reviews of um, different products that we have, you know, on sling. Yeah. And uh, those have been really great to read because there's just a nice, healthy balance of what's the high like versus what's the terpene profile worth versus what did the buds look like before you smoked them i think it's really great yeah. it's really great
0: yeah and uh, I'm, I'm i'm with you um i'm, I'm mm-hmm. the taste the taste is something that you know it's, it's not super important to me but um like, like uh montanuska Montenus- thunder fucker mtf um, mm-hmm. great taste absolutely great taste tangy mm-hmm. is amazing taste um, they, that has stuck with me, but I feel like you, I, I'm more into the body eye, what it does for me. Yeah.
1: Right, right. Now, do you see, see, I, like you, as you know, I tend to do dabs more, although lately I've, I'm i swinging back to the other side, and now I really enjoy a nice pre roll.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm kind of getting, back into flour. Yeah. Um, so you, but you smoke mostly flour, is that right?
0: I do mostly pre pre rolls and then I do uh um vapes, uh and some flour on occasion. Yeah. hmm Yeah. Do
1: you like do you know how to roll a joint? I, I,
0: I can barely walk and chew gum, but at the same time you you. I don't know how to roll one
1: either. Yeah. No I'm without the ends.
0: Yeah, I can do I can do it okay, um, but other than that it's you no, know, I, I, I end up yeah, I, I can't, I really, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time, so.
1: It's fun to see, there are people like Brenda, she loves to roll joints. She yeah. doesn't care to smoke them, she, there's just something about the tactile experience of rolling it that is just right mm-hmm. where she's at. Yeah. I don't know, it's interesting all the different ways. I still love a good dab, although I'm mm-hmm. realizing that it can do a real number on my lungs, you know? Really? Yeah, where I'll feel like my lung capacity has been like leveled down dramatically. Um, because of a dab. So that Um, part's not great.
0: Is it it during during when you take a dab, or is it afterwards you kind of feel it like... It's um, after. After?
1: Yeah. And I wonder if it's because, like, maybe oil is getting down into my lungs or something and kind of creating, like, little, like a thin film or something that makes it hard to kind of breathe through. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say too much about it because I'm going to go do a dab after we get off the phone here, but... (laughs) Yeah. I'm not actually complaining. I'm just saying. Right, right. But lately, um, I enjoy getting a pre-roll. When I go out to the other stores, I like to get a pre-roll and then have that on the way home. It just feels really cool to be like, mm. <sighs> I like that. And then it's very social to have to smoke a joint.
0: Very much so. It's like, That's oh, fun. I got a joint. Yeah. People yeah. get
1: spooked by dabs. You know, they're like, oh, I don't. Hurr. It's like, yeah. well, you don't need to be scared, but I get it. Let's do a joint. Let's smoke a joint instead.
0: Okay, uh, that, I, I smoke. Uh, I, I, I roll up one for my neighbor. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a, he he does it as well. He used to grow it as well. Yeah, it's always a, it's mm-hmm. just it's it's kind of hard to bring a rig over and, and say let's let's have. Yeah, a it's rig. a little so, much. Yeah,
1: it's a little much,
0: especially in the COVID. It isn't makes not, it not great.
1: Yeah, well, so, same with sharing a joint. I yeah. like those little the idea of those dog walker joints. You know those little half gram oh, yeah. jobbies. I That's love That's a them. good idea for COVID. That's yeah. good for COVID too. Then it's like, well, then gather five friends around. Everybody's got their own. Yep. You still stand and have mm-hmm. that experience of community, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't like smoking out of a pipe or a bong. No, Those days are over for me. I just don't like smelling or feeling like I have an ashtray in my mouth.
0: So you, you're, you're doing marketing, correct?
1: Yes, sir. I do marketing and I think I do a lot of, um, I I do a lot of work um, maintaining and cultivating the culture at the company. I like to think that I um, have played a role in identifying or defining the culture of can of provisions. Wow. Uh, I don't know whether that, whether that's true or not, but I like to think it, but like I do, I don't know if I ever, if you ever did it, but when we get in groups of new employees, I do um, an activity called thank you, Mary Jane. Have I, have you ever heard of that? Mm -mm. The idea is, With a a room full of new folks, part of the activities of getting to know you, icebreaker activity, is to say, if you were to write a thank you letter to marijuana, what would you thank her for? Mm. And then I pass out thank you cards and everybody writes on them. And then one by one, we read our thank you letter aloud. And it is an amazing, amazing phenomenon because number one, people find like, for example, if you were to write a thank you letter to marijuana, what would you thank her for?
0: For greatly reducing my anxiety.
1: Yep. Right. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And, and so, and like in a group of 20 reading 20 of them, you get about 15 different answers that are all really valid. Mm -hmm. And, and reading it aloud causes the reader to, Acknowledge something about themselves and own something about themselves. It's pretty profound and pretty soul-bearing, mm-hmm. in a way. And 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 because we're all so engaged in it, um, in the hearing and the sharing, the room becomes closer. You yeah. know, we all become closer because we understand, like, oh, you use it for anxiety too, shit, or who, you know, yeah. it helped your mom too, or kept you off the streets, or got you off a of heroin, or yeah. any number of reasons that people hadn't really anticipated they were going to share right. when it came time to do the icebreaker activity. But here they are talking about, you know, their mom's drug addiction or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's a really, really beautiful, beautiful thing. So I like to do that. And I think also, um, again, going back to Mary Jane doesn't, she's everybody's good friend. Mm-hmm. We all love her to pieces at work. You know yeah. and we all feel lucky and grateful that we are able to talk about it and laugh about it and share about it and and put it for, push it forward into the universe. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think we all make great ambassadors yeah. for cannabis users yeah. in our communities, Barnum without a doubt yeah it's beautiful so yeah, but so I do the newsletter. And I also do a fair amount of customer service lately. I like I'm really enjoying answering all of the voicemails that we get,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: the emails that come in. I'm handling all of those now, which I really enjoy. And I love doing the employee newsletter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's another um, great way to um, infuse the culture. Because yeah. if you read the, you know, there's a lot of good info in there about yes. how how to do what we do and why we do what we do. Yeah. And I enjoy being able to be the decider of what what we'll say and how we'll do it this week and how we'll phrase it. I love that. Yeah. I think that, has a, that, that helps to create the culture um, or to sustain it. And I uh, also do all of the, the in-store signage and merchandising in mm-hmm. each of the stores, which is another great um, thing I'm really grateful for. And I get to do a lot of really amazing creative projects that help me perpetuate, you know, the friendly stranger persona mm-hmm. of a cannabis user, right? Beware of the yeah. friendly stranger um, and doing that in all different kinds of ways. I like to have ideas. I have a billion ideas
2: mm-hmm. on
1: any topic and uh, I'm finally working at a place where a lot of where my vocation and my avocation are in perfect sync, perfect alignment. Yeah. So I'm really grateful for that. Really yeah. grateful. I only want that to
0: grow. Right. And yeah. uh, I want to say thank you for the newsletters, really. they, they have been, oh, Thank you, Chris. You no, know, they're really, they've been helpful. Uh, they've, I mean, what I know about cannabis, you can, what I don't know about cannabis, you can just about squeeze into the Grand Canyon. And it's I'm mm-hmm. ashamed uh, to say, but I'm learning. And that's one of the things I love about this job. It is, mm-hmm. I learn something new yeah. all the time. I learn well, from and people younger, Well And it helps to be to
1: interested older. in it. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah
1: it helps to be interested in what you're learning that helps but what's interesting to me is that i'm like oh shit what have we put in the newsletter that actually teaches about cannabis
2: mm-hmm.
1: we don't really you know what i mean most like there's a lot of heavy duty customer service council going on in there right now but it's interesting that you say that
0: well and i you're mean, getting
1: something out of it
0: yeah in that way for sure that's great um, yeah, just how to handle things and how the industry is just how uh, out- it's out- evolving with customers and how we can handle uh, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. things have shifted since the, you know since COVID and um, there's, mm-hmm. and uh, you got to be really careful, gentle with customers about about the situation because they don't know you know some some right. older generation they don't really read the websites so you have to mm-hmm. let them know look, gradually and and be patient with that because yeah. that, that was... And yeah,
1: yeah. That's kind of um, like what's that, you know, it's part of our, our mission statement is meeting people where they are.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah.
1: And that's so important because if you don't meet me where I am, I'm not going to feel safe wherever you try to drag me to. Yeah. But if I feel like you're right beside me, and that's part of the methodology that Megan Eric designed from the start was like with our display center, with our display kiosks in, in Lee. It's not, a, it's not a glass countertop that everybody looks down into. It's a conversation that is eye to eye and shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. so that we're in this together. Let's look at it together. Let's look forward together at what's available instead of I'm going to sit on one side of the counter, you're going to stand on the other, and we're going to look down
2: mm-hmm.
1: while you figure out what you want. That's yeah. not what we're about. We really yeah. are about turning people on yeah. to this wonderful plant.
0: And, and I, I feel like a, a, lo- a lot of the times it feels like it's um, we're also having to um, what's that word demystify? No, not demystify, but to de- debunk debunk a lot of a lot of criticisms that were made about marijuana. I feel like a lot of times right. people are, doesn't this do this to me? Doesn't like no, no, it's totally fine. It's it's not like it's not like uh, nicotine or anything. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel like that's mm-hmm. been your experience? You have to spend a ton of time having to debunk a lot of this crap.
1: Uh, A little bit, yeah, in terms of um, I try to be extra sensitive to, you know, explaining things as I go along, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when people are like, I want a tincture to help my pain and also help me sleep, then my answer to them is often going to include a short lesson about the one-two punch power of whole plant science and how when you have cannabis and THC or CBD and THC, they really – they the wonder twin powers activate in a way that you can't have unless you have both of them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and about like, um, like with tinctures, my favorite tip with tinctures that I learned from Michelle is, you know, that you can put it in the body lotion and have an infused lotion just like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, yeah, don't, why have all your money tied up in a body lotion? Get your money tied up in some tincture that you can use this way or this way or drop it into a piece of white bread and ball that up and eat it, feed it to your dog. I mean, it's so versatile. So trying to kind of educate in a way that is more about like, I'm just excited and want to share what I know. I'm not going to assume you don't know. And I'm not certainly not going to make you feel dumb for not knowing. Mm -hmm. You're welcome to silently learn as I just bah, 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 ba ba about what I think you should try. And I also really love, and you maybe have found this too, how important it is to let people tell their story. Like Mm -hmm. when we went to, when we had a table at the farmer's market last summer, I loved it. It was so great because there were people who wouldn't even go into our store, but when they see us right next to the vegetable guy that they've been going to every summer, you can see him look at the table and be like, you know what I do have a question and mm-hmm. they come up and they ask you this question that is so adorably misinformed that you just, I'm just grateful that they showed up
2: mm-hmm. so
1: that I can, you know, let me assure you, you know, <laughs> no, no, let me assure you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and you can see them lay their worries down. And uh, I think we're all really amazing ambassadors for mm-hmm. this plant. We speak yeah. for the trees, you know, we're the Lorax of cannabis. We speak for her. And, uh, and again, come on in. The water's warm. There's no, no worries. You're fine. Yeah. There's friends here, you know, so I'd love it.
0: So I love, he- it, love, it, love it. For, for marketing is it's a huge challenge to market for marijuana because there's a ton of restrictions is that is that correct?
1: Yeah. I, I, and yet at the same time it sells itself. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in terms of like this shit sells itself. Uh, But yeah, there are uh, certain restrictions. One man's restriction is another man's um, challenge, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Or
1: opportunity or way, you know, a a call to think outside of the box. But yeah, there's certain elements, you know, like we're not allowed to um, use the actual cannabis leaf or any kind of cannabis product in our external advertising. Um, And so that's tricky especially and then it gets confusing when you go and see other businesses clearly either disregarding the regulation or maybe we're the one you can feel kind of gaslit a little bit to be like wait well they're doing it yeah why can't we do it if they're doing it what so that but then there's also uh you know like during the holidays you can also have a lot of fun with it uh, because you can you know, during the holidays, we did a um, an ad that went into the back of like a, Hanuk- uh, a Jewish magazine or like a Hanukkah ad. Right. And, you know, cannabis is kosher was the headline we went with.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it is.
1: It's kosher. And, you know, and, and then again, I give you every seed, every plant growing seed on the planet to use. And kind of using those kinds of um, messages to help people lay down their fears yeah. and their worries and their stigma. Stigma is a hell of a drug.
0: Yeah. It, it certainly really is. is. Yeah. And, and really I think is. that's, I think that's what we're having to fight of, about this plant. This is, it's been stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the word I was mm-hmm. looking for was stigmat being stigmatized. And I'm yeah. saying, look, trust us it's changed our lives for the greater, yep. for the better. And mm-hmm. I, and I kind of feel like um, I just I discovered Jesus or something, and, right. <laughs> and one of his disciples. And yeah. uh, disciples, well, from his yeah, plant. or
1: it's like the ring. You want to, yeah. you know, you protect your Frodo. You're going to protect it and keep it safe and love it and turn your friend, turn as many people onto it. Yeah, because it's the water's warm. There's no no
0: worries. Yeah. Before we go, i like to go on the record. That is my dream to get high with Dog, and I hopefully it's uh, it's going to come I true one day. I bet you will. I hope so. I think I it really will. Do.
1: I well,
0: bet it will. It'll be fantastic. It He's has been nice an absolute wonderful pleasure talking to you. It really has. I've learned so Thank much. Thank you, Chris. The, I enjoyed it too. And um, the depth of you and, and who you are. And, and one of the things that if I failed to do so um, was to express that, you know, you are, you're an extremely thoughtful person. And when I said I was, word got out, I was looking for an apartment in Beckett. You came up with the magazine so I can look through it and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you're very thoughtful of us. You're thoughtful of the plant. You're thoughtful of of, of of everything. And so it's it's appreciated in our end.
1: Thank you, sir. You're Thank welcome.
0: You. And it was a pleasure. I enjoyed pleasure. this a lot. Me too. All right, man. All right. I
1: guess we're done then?
0: We're done then. Have a good day. Okay.
1: All right. I'll see you around. See you around. Oh, it's almost 420. <laughs> really? <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <Bye-bye>. <laughs> see ya.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to our website, thefullpodcast.com, and follow us. We'd appreciate your support. More episodes are soon on their way.